When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Yuval Noah Harari, the historian and author of Sapiens, joins us to discuss his new book, Unstoppable Us, Volume 1. His work has spawned a whole genre, big history, And today, he'll be taking us back to the dawn of humankind and reflecting on the turbulent times humanity finds itself in today. This episode is a deep dive in two parts, as there was a lot we wanted to discuss with Yuval when he visited London recently. If you can't wait for part two, hit subscribe now and premium listeners can get both installments right away at this instant. See the link in the episode description or head to iq2premium.supercast.com to get that right now. And Apple listeners, you can do the same on your podcast app. Just hit the subscribe button. But now back to today. Our host for this discussion is the academic and broadcaster, Professor Shahida Bari. Here's Shahida with more. Some books are big in scope and impact. In 2011, Yuval Noah Harari wrote A Brief History of Humankind, published in English as Sapiens in 2015. It's since been translated into 65 different languages. It became a New York Times bestseller, was admired by Barack Obama and Bill Gates, and has been widely received as a publishing phenomenon. But Harari's account of 300,000 years of human history has also attracted criticism by those who've questioned its scientific analysis and accused it of sensationalism. Still, if humanity is a story, Sapiens and its future-focused follow-up Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, has nudged the dial on how we see ourselves as a species, bringing the story to new audiences. And it's the book that's launched a great many other books, spawning a growing genre of God's eye view nonfiction known as big history. His latest book is on the smaller side and for smaller people, although still full of big ideas. Unstoppable Us, Volume 1, is an illustrated book for children, inviting them to look at the early history of humankind. Yuval Noah Harari joins me now to talk about Unstoppable Us, Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Yuval. Hello, thank you. It's good to be here. Why write a children's book, first of all? 
you know, children should be part of the conversation about the big issues that we are facing. And very often children ask the big questions far more seriously than the adults. The adults often just take it for granted. Uh, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, where we came from. And children, you know, you have this phenomenon that they ask why, and you answer something, and they ask why. And sometimes adults find it a bit annoying, but in essence, they really want to get to the bottom of things. So I find that it's often more interesting, even more important to talk with children about it because they are more open uh, to really going to, 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 to the deepest level of understanding who we are. Did you have particular children in mind when you were writing this? Were there particular young people asking you why? Um, there are, of course, my, my nephews and nieces. There was also myself. I kind of remembered myself as a 10-year-old or 11-year-old trying to make sense of the world and asking the adults all the big questions and often being very, very dissatisfied <laughs> with the... I mean, I think what most kind of troubled me as, 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 a, as, a, as a child or as a teenager was that the adults didn't seem to have good answers to the big questions. They didn't really know uh, 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 what was life all about or what the world was all about and it didn't bother them. Yeah. It kind of, uh, how can they live their life going about their business being very worried about all kinds of small things when they don't understand the big things? <laughs> that makes me think you must have been very difficult to have in a classroom for a teacher. <laughs> yes. But, but what, what were the questions you were asking as a child? What were the big questions? The big questions. You know, you have the kind of really big question of, of who are we and what is the meaning of life? And then you have the big questions like, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why are there uh, uh, so many wars? What, what, what is it all about? You know, the, the, my, my first... If I think, what are my, my first historical memories? Like, you have your first personal memories, I don't know, from kindergarten or from your family, but there is a point in the life, I think, of every human being when you realize there is a bigger story out there. It's not just about me and my sisters and my neighbors. There is a bigger world out there. And when I ask myself, what is my first historical memory? So, you know, it's surprisingly, it's the sinking of the Sheffield in the Falklands War in, on, on May 1982. That I lived in Israel, right. and for, for some reason, this is the moment that kind of, uh, I still remember the images. And uh, I had no idea where the Falklands is and what is the difference between Argentinians. But I think that there was also one incident that there was uh, a British soldier on, 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 the, on the ship was killed in the sinking of the Sheffield, and he was interviewed a few days earlier and after the event, they, they, they broadcasted the interview on TV. And I couldn't, I mean, they told that this was an interview with a dead person. He was killed. And so how can, you know, I was six at the time. I was, I was, in 1982, I was six. And it really kind of stuck in, in my mind. And a month later, the Lebanon war started, which was much, much closer to home. And this was, I think, the summer of 1982 is the moment I realized that uh, there, there is history besides my, my, my personal life. And the, the introduction was really, it was war and, 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 and suffering and violence. And we often try to shield children from, from uh, this dark side of human reality, but really we can't. Yes. I mean, I don't know, you think now about the war in Ukraine and the Russian invasion and millions of kids 
have lost family members, have lost their, their homes, sometimes injured or, or killed themselves. We can't really shield them. Yes. But it's so interesting hearing you talk about that. I, I have a similar memory of the invasion of Kuwait as a child, that mm. being a kind of an awakening and a, a realisation, as you're saying, of a, a, a bigger history being part of a bigger world. Yeah. But your work is often asking us to think about a very big kind of history. <laughs> so tell me how Unstoppable Us connects to your other work. Hmm. So Unstoppable Us really tries to go to the very beginning. You know, the, uh, our view of the world is often shaped by origin stories. And you know, as, as a child in Israel, I also heard, I mean, long before they taught me anything about history in school, you learn the Bible and you learn about Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and Noah's flood, as if this is where we came from long before you encounter anything about Neanderthals or about the amazing cave art of Lascaux, of Suluwazi. And so Unstoppable Us is really kind of giving a scientific origin story. Uh, because if you learn an origin story, like you sometimes you say, oh, they're just kids. Let them learn these mythologies. And when they grow up, then they can uh, uh, learn science. And it's wrong because then you, it, it's so difficult to unlearn a story that you're already uh, absorbed, that you're already attached to. So the idea of Unstoppable Us is really to be a kind of scientific origin story uh, for, for, for the people of the 21st century. Yes, and children are often receptive to origin stories. It's one of the, the questions they ask, where have we come from? Yeah. This is a, an illustrated book, but with a great deal of text still. Yes. I wonder how you went about writing for this age group. Uh, oh, it demanded a lot more research than I imagined at first, because I really had to go beyond what I, I wrote in, in, in Sapiens, partly because there is a, a lot of new research, partly because, uh, you know, I got a lot of feedback on, on, on Sapiens and I wanted to take that, that on board and use the op op opportunity to, to rethink some things, but mainly because it turned out it's actually harder really? to write uh, science for, for, for young people because you need to really, really know what you're saying. When you write for adults and you're not sure about something, you can, you know, fuzz it a, a little. You can write these long sentences with complicated words, which kind of make it difficult to, to, to understand what you're really, really talking about. Yes. And uh, with adults, when they read this, they sometimes think, oh, well, um, I'm not smart enough to understand it. So it's a trick. You hide your own ignorance by kind of displacing it to the readers. And it doesn't work with kids because they won't go for it. If you write in a children's book these very long sentences with complicated words and concepts, they will just put the book aside. Mm -hmm. So you have to be very, very clear. And to be very clear, you need to really understand what you're talking about. And this kind of forced me to, to, to think harder. What do I really want to say? Yeah. So I had to do a lot of, of new research and a lot of, 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 of thinking uh, uh, when, when writing Unstoppable Us. That's a very interesting answer because I, I think you often imagine that writing for children is, is reducing and simplifying hard ideas. But here you're saying you were revising the ideas that were in Sapiens in some way. You were refining your ideas in this book for children. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, it, it is in a way simplifying them. You need to speak in simpler terms and, 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 and language. But that is exactly what makes it so hard. 
because you need to be more precise, more concrete. And, and as I said, this forces you to actually think harder. I often see it also in university. When students write papers, if I tell them uh, you can write a, a 20-page paper, it's easier than if they have only five pages to write. Because in a 20-page paper, you don't really have to make these difficult decisions, what they really want to say, and what is important, and what is less important. Let's just spill it all out. And, 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 and the readers will make sense of it. But if you know, you, can, you only have five pages, you have to uh, be far more concise and focused, and that's difficult. Yeah. The book is illustrated uh, by Ricard Zaplano Ruiz. Mm-hmm. How did you work with him to put this book together? Oh, it was a lot. I mean, not, not only him. I have an entire team working on it. Uh, I've, uh, I, I worked with editors specializing in writing for children in, in, in Germany. And I have my entire team in Israel and Ricard in, in Spain. It was really kind of an international project. And you go back and forth, back and forth, uh, uh, debating how to present the ideas and also how to illustrate them. And again, the illustrations they force you to think harder. Because when you're writing text, you can be less concrete. Let's take, for example, a very important part of human history, the meeting between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. Right. So, for instance, uh, there is, again, this, this origin story of what happens when sapiens meet Neanderthals. There is a possibility of violence, but there is also, we know, that there were actually uh, not, not, not just uh, sexual relations between sapiens and Neanderthals, uh, but children born to a mixed couple. Maybe a sapiens uh, woman with a Neanderthal man having a child together. And almost all of us on Earth today are the offspring, the descendants of these mixed relationships. Now, when you come to actually describe this kind of kid who has a sapiens mother and a Neanderthal father, what what is it like? One question is, how do they look like? And what's their skin color? Which, you know, is a very explosive question in, 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 in today's environment. When you just write text, if you're not sure or you're afraid of dealing with this question, you just avoid it. You don't have to uh, 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 write how they looked like. But in illustration, you have no no, no option. I mean, you must describe, you must illustrate them in some way. So how does a sapiens Neanderthal couple look like? And you have to go to, you have to do the research. You have to read all the latest articles on on what we know about the external appearance of sapiens and Neanderthals 50,000 years ago. And you have to think about, you know, the political implications, the social implications of, of, of today. So illustrations, because they are always, words can be abstract, illustrations must always be concrete, and concrete is more difficult than abstract. You need to think harder about the concrete stuff. Yes. Yuval, reading this, I could recognize the traces of sapiens, the the story of humans discovering fire, their ability to cooperate, and that moment you described of Neanderthals meeting Homo sapiens. I wonder why you think telling these stories, this version of history, to young people matters and what what they would gain from that understanding. And it's really understanding who we are. Part of it, you know, is just fun, learning how people lived 
tens of thousands of years ago, there are no schools, no supermarkets, no high-rise buildings. We live in the wild forests. We climb trees to pick fruits. We, uh, uh, we hunt animals. We run away from animals. We make stone tools. It's kind of lights up your imagination of what does it mean to, 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 be, to be human being? What can we do? But also it, it touches on the, on the deepest question of, of identity, of who we are, what is our place in the world. So instant, for, for instance, this again, this key story of sapiens meeting Neanderthals, what's happening there? So, I mean, it makes it very concrete that we are just animals. That is such a simple idea, but also such an explosive idea to understand, you know, we are used to thinking about ourselves as being very distant from the other animals. Like we are on the one side of a huge chasm and all these other animals, all the elephants and chimpanzees and whatever on the other side. Uh, but Neanderthals are the bridge in between. Look, there were other species of, of, of humans, actually an, another type of animal, and, and they are part of us. Again, just thinking about it, a, a, a child 50,000 years ago with a sapiens mother and a Neanderthal father. We talk about mixed families today. Now, this is a mixed family. Right. I mean, they're, 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 like, they're, from, they're different animals having a kid together. Uh, so what does it tell us about our place in nature in relation to the other animals? What does it imply about discussions of identity today? You know, you have people like, I don't know, Viktor Orban giving a speech, what, what was it, like three weeks ago, four weeks ago, about how the danger to European civilization of uh, mixed families of people coming from, God forbid, Africa or Asia and having a family together with people from Europe. And, um, you know, you, you, you go back in our history and forget about, about sapiens from Africa and sapiens. You have families with a Neanderthal and a sapiens and it's all of us. If, you, if Viktor Orban goes and, and, and does a DNA test, it's like 100% sure he will discover that he has ancestors, not just from Africa or from Asia, he has Neanderthal ancestors. Yes. So these are extremely relevant issues. It's not something that happened 50,000 years ago. It's something which is still extremely relevant to how we understand who we are today. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks again for all your support. But you also tell the story in this book of the extinction of the Neanderthals. Yes. And... It, it strikes me that there are ideas that might be difficult or, or even traumatic for children mm -hmm. to understand. You, you say that's a big secret that mm. people don't like to talk about the extinction yeah. of the, the Andernatural. And then that's what you're going to talk about in this book. Yes. So are there ideas that are too traumatic, too difficult for children to understand? Or can, can everything be said? It's a question of how you talk about it. I think we can't avoid talking about war and racism and even genocide with, with kids because they live on the same planet with us and they are affected by these things. So they ask questions, they need answers. I think that, but the, the, how to do it 
it's, I, I think it's wrong to overwhelm them with, uh, I don't know, details of horrors because uh, you need to wait with that until somebody is mature enough to process it. It's, there, there is no point, you know, just throwing a bomb on somebody and walking away and let them deal with it. Mm-hmm. You have to mediate it. And I believe the key message, which is the key message of the entire book, is the message of, of agency. That, yes, there are horrors happening in the world, but they are not inevitable. They are not deterministic. People shape the world. If there are things like wars, like genocide, it's not because these are the laws of nature. It's because these are the decisions people make. Uh, The world in which we live was shaped by people and it can be changed by people. And this should be part of whenever we talk about these things with kids, the, 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 the part of the message should be not that, you know, this is just how the world is. There are wars. There is genocide. There is racism. What can you do? Because this is not only terrifies, it also petrifies. I mean, oh, we can do nothing about it. No, you said, yes, there are these terrible things, but they are the outcome of human decisions, of human mythology, of the things human believe. It doesn't have to be like that. We can make different decisions and uh, create a better world. I'm almost surprised to hear you talk in those terms, Yuval, about agency. At the, the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. you have this wonderful, quite romantic epigraph. You say to, to all beings, those gone, those living and those still to come, we can decide what the world will become. And you say this book is about agency. Yeah. Uh, Previously, people would have thought that you are the kind of thinker who questions free will, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, this I get this question a lot uh, because, you know, this, this, this whole confusion about the, the notion of free will. For me, the problem is the notion of, of free will, that it actually reduces not just agency, it reduces curiosity about uh, how, how we decide things, how we do things. If you believe that your decisions are just the outcome of free will, there is nothing to investigate. Why did I choose to buy this car and not that car? Why did I choose this partner, this political party? Because it's my free will. There is nothing to investigate. The key thing is to start questioning your own decisions. And, and, and that means, in a way, questioning to what extent is my will really free? And you start realizing, actually, my decisions are at least in part the result of uh, propaganda, the result of cultural influences, the result of biological processes within my body. And freedom is not something you have. Freedom is something you have to struggle for. If you start with the position, I have free will, anything I decide is just my free will, that's the end. There is no curiosity. And you are the easiest person to control because you don't even suspect the many different ways in which either cultural or biological systems are actually controlling you. So for me, raising this doubt, is it really free? Did you really make this decision just because of your free will? This is the start of uh, uh, the process of gaining real freedom. Reading the book, Yuval, I I was very conscious that you're a thinker who has been questioned very often about this question of free will. What part does free will have in a world of material mechanics? Is is there any any role for it at all? But I wondered whether 
there was a part of you that felt almost obliged to allow for, make room for agency or free will, because mm. this is a book for children, yeah. but perhaps you need to address them in a different way. It's too difficult to tell a child that they have no choice in the world, that mm. they are part of a series of me me mechanics in the world of evolution. But actually, we need to tell children the world that you're in, you can transform. And I wondered if that made you revise some of your thinking from Sapiens, perhaps. Um, again, I think the, the key difference is between will and free will. Yes, we obviously have desires. We often, obviously make the decisions and choices all the time. The big question is, are the, these choices really free? And contrary to what people believe, I think the kind of naive belief in free will that, you know, you have this image, I stand in the supermarket, I have these shelves full of, 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 of breakfast cereals, and I can choose whatever brand I want, this is kind of the image of, of freedom we get at least for, you know, consumerism and, and, and capitalism. This is uh, uh, very problematic because uh, you are not aware of the many ways, again, cultural and biological, in which you are being manipulated and controlled and so forth. So, um, again, I think it's, it's also it's pointless to go into this endless philosophical discussion. Is there free will? Is that, I mean, as a starting point, it's a very bad starting point because it, it, it kills curiosity. There is, there is nothing to investigate if you just take it for granted that every decision you make is simply the outcome of your free will. If it is the end result of your investigation, you really looked into yourself, you really uh, uh, researched history and biology and brain science. And after all these investigations, you think there is still some space of freedom? That's, that's great, that's fine. But it cannot be uh, the starting point. And again, if you look also when you look at sapiens, the most important idea in, in, in sapiens, really in all my books, is the enormous power of stories of the stories human believe, that it's not about economic power relations. It's not about uh, genetics and evolution. Yes, th these things are also uh, uh, influential, but ultimately the stories that people invent and believe are maybe the most powerful force in history. And the thing about stories is that you can change them and you can change them very, very quickly. Changing our DNA, that's very difficult. Right. Changing the laws of physics, that's, that's, that's impossible. But changing the stories we believe, people do it all the time, extremely quickly. This is how you get, I don't know, you, I mean, you look at German history in the 20th century, you get these five or six completely different political and, 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 and social systems. You have, you know, the, 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 the Second Reich, until 1918, you have the Weimar Republic, you have the Nazi period, you have communist East Germany, uh, democratic West Germany, you have reunified Germany. It's the same people with the same climate, the same DNA, the same geography, the same everything, believing in different stories. Right. And uh, realizing the enormous power of storytelling, it's also realizing the enormous uh, agency and ability to, to change our, our behavior. One of the, I think the story that you tell 
in all of your books, certainly Sapiens and in, and here, is the story of the evolutionary superiority of human beings. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you have a chapter here, I think, with the title, Why Ants Have Queens But No Lawyers. Yeah. Humans have lawyers, but ants don't get to have lawyers. And it struck me that that message or that story of, the, of human superiority, we're better than the ants or we're cleverer than the ants, is different to the ecological messaging that we're having at the moment about the extinction of species, which often downplays our importance. Mm. You know, the, I wonder what you think about this backlash about the Anthropocene, that humans, you know, for all our ecological superiority, that this is a moment where actually we want to downplay our superiority. I don't think that humans are necessarily smarter than other animals. They are certainly not nicer than other animals. And again, when you place the the emphasis on, 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 on fictional stories, it's actually we are more gullible than other animals. We believe we know a lot more 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 true facts than other animals, but we also believe far more nonsense than any animal on earth. There are many things that we believe that no chimpanzee and no dog (laughs) will ever consider believing because they are just too nonsensical. But we believe them. And that's the source of our power because fiction is the basis for, 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 for cooperation. And I think especially at this point in history, when we are destabilizing the entire ecological system and we are pushing so many other species to extinction, we should take responsibility. It's, this is not a time to downplay our power and our agency because this implies that, hey, whatever is happening in the world, it's not our fault and we can't do anything about it. No, much of what is happening in the world in ecological terms is definitely our fault. It's the fault of the particular stories that we tell ourselves uh, and, and, and we, we can still change it. So, you know, it's, it's, it starts with religious stories that again, you learn as a kid in the book of Genesis that God created humans as superior to all the other animals and gave humans actually the command to rule and exploit all, all the echoes. I mean, as if, as if the entire, everything was just created for us. Yeah. And you have, I don't know, this Noah, the, the, the story of Noah's flood, which again implies that, you know, the entire ecosystem is destroyed because of human sin. Which, you know, if you're a giraffe, you ask yourself, why? Well, I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I kind of drowning? Because these apes did something that, why? But the message kids get is from, from these kind of biblical stories is that it's all about us. And, and this links directly to the ecological catastrophe that we are facing because, I mean, what led to it is this impression that the entire ecosystem is just there for us. It's just there for us to exploit and, 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 and whatever. Uh, so we need to change these kinds of stories. And similarly, if you think about modern economic stories, because, you know, I mean, the biggest stories, the best storytellers today in the world are not the people who win the Nobel Prize in literature. It's the people who win the Nobel Prize in economics. Right. They are the greatest storytellers in the world. The one story, like everybody believes, is the story of money. Which again, money is just, uh, it's, it's just a fiction in our imagination. It's not something that, you know, it's not like a banana or a coconut you can eat or drink or whatever. It's just a story we tell ourselves. We are the only animal aware of its existence. You know, chimpanzees know that there are bananas in the world. They don't know that there is money because money exists only in the imagination of, of Homo sapiens. And understanding what money is, is so crucial for changing the type of economic system we have, which is ultimately responsible for the type of ecological system 
uh, 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 that we have. And again, I think that kids are in a kind of uh, uh, privileged position to talk with them about what money is because they still question it. As adults, we just use it all the time. We don't think about it. What is this thing? That, uh, um, and, you know, ultimately you can think about it, uh, you know, it's like points in a computer game. That uh, how do you control people in a computer game? You give them points. You do this, you get points. You do this, you, you lose points. And um, money is just the points we invented for the game of life. You do this, you get points. You, but what are these points? Who this, I mean, this is something that, again, I think it's crucial to ask. And it's, in a way, easier to talk about with, with kids because it's still a bit unfamiliar to them. How does it work, this, this, yeah. this strange thing with, with, with the money? fascinating stuff there in part one and remember you can hit subscribe to intelligence squared premium to hear part two of the discussion right away see the link in the episode description to go straight there we'll also be checking back in with the rest of the conversation for all listeners soon at a later date unstoppable us volume one by yuval Noah harari is available in all good bookshops from 20th of october this has been intelligence squared thanks again for listening What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.